Now, if you'd turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, part 2 of who's in and who's out. And remember, as I said last time, I mean this only metaphorically. I do not mean that you are saved by doing something or not doing something. Your Bible clearly says that's not the case. But your Bible also says that those who are redeemed are being transformed. Their minds are being made new. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that they do have the power over sin. They're no longer in bondage to it. And in order for those things that we would receive by grace to be meaningful, there also needs to be repentance associated with behaviors that we know are absolutely wrong as far as Scripture is concerned. And so the issue actually becomes, for all of us, the issue that we find in the remainder of chapter 6. And it is the issue of anything that becomes a master. Anything that takes mastery over you. Uh, the Peru team is going to be you know, taking some hikes through some village areas. Uh, you end up where you want to go when you have the right person directing the hike. Amen? If you have someone who does not know where they're going, you could end up anywhere. That's an issue of mastery. You want the right leader. And for the body of Christ, our leader is the Lord Jesus himself. It is his word, and it is word that we follow. And so would you join me, and we'll pray, and we'll pick up verses 12 to 20 here in 1 Corinthians 6. Father, we thank you that we have victory over sin. We, we are no longer in bondage to it. And so we would ask God that tonight as we study this passage, which admittedly is difficult, it's, uh, it strikes to the heart of our, of our way of life in America. Lord, we have become a hypersexualized society and is destroying, Lord, our children, is destroying the lives of adults. And yet your word, Lord, is so clear that we as a church ought to be standing against uh, a debauched lifestyle. And so, God, we pray that your word would speak to us tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12. And notice he shifted away from this list, which again is not complete. Uh, you can combine it with Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5, and you get a very large list of a number of things. But that list was not intended to, to be an end all, cure all to every kind of sin, every flavor of sin, not even every type of sin. It's just simply saying that these things that the world says are okay, that God says are not okay, should not be in the life of the believer, and that there is a repercussion to it. And that is, if you practice such things, continue in them unashamedly, unabashedly, unrepentantly, you have no claim to the kingdom of God. You shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul states it twice very plainly in a very short period of time. So it's not saying you're saved by works. It's simply saying if you are saved, then your works ought to bear witness to the fact that you're a child of God. That, that those things that James wrote to us about, I will show you my faith by my works, that faith without works is dead, is true in the life of a believer. And so we pick up, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. And it's believed that this was a uh, kind of a, a normal statement for the day. The Jews uh, and the Greeks both believed that the mind was quite powerful. And so there were a number of axioms, statements that they would make, that people would then repeat frequently and often. This appears to be one of them. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And then notice how he begins. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. And now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? There's a little bit of Jesus walking around with you. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the living God dwells in you as a believer. Wherever you go, Jesus goes. Whatever you do, Jesus is party two. He's right there with us in the good and in the bad. Think about that for a second. Shall I then make the members of Christ take them and make them a, members with a harlot? Certainly not. Now I want you to be clear what's being said here. Do you think Jesus wants to go on your little expedition to that club and then to that motel? Do you understand what he's saying here? Read it carefully. Are you going to join Christ to a prostitute? This is tough stuff, family of God. And I believe it's tough for a reason. Because things have not changed much in the last 2,000 years. And people still want to drag Jesus into their den of sin. And he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to be there. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? And the two shall become one flesh. Is that not what Scripture declares about the intent of marriage? We'll dig into this as we go through our time tonight. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You don't belong to you. If you've received grace, if you've taken that gift of faith, you've breathed in that new life in Christ, you have believed in the name of the only begotten Son, you no longer have ownership of your own body. It does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. And this is not some extreme view of this passage. This is a literal rendering of exactly what it says. You were bought with a price. And therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen? Tough passage of Scripture, isn't it? But it shouldn't be. Because it should make absolute sense that if you've been bought and paid for, run it in reverse now. Anybody in here thankful for the fact that Jesus died on Calvary's cross for you? Oh, hallelujah, thank you, Lord Jesus, I am. So if that's the case, you did not have to die for you. Christ died for you in that sense he paid the price for you. He doesn't want to pay that price in vain. He paid that price to do several things, certainly to redeem you. He paid the price for your sins so that you can be reconciled with God. You can be justified, made legally right in the eyes of one who has the legal right to pronounce you guilty and send you into eternity to hell. But instead, Jesus paid the price for your life. He's redeemed your life back. He said, I'll pay whatever it is. 
And in that sense, you who were a slave to sin, the Apostle Paul said in writing to the church at Rome, he has now set free and made alive unto Christ. You see, the reason this is so hard is because we don't like the conclusion We live in the most individualistic society, the most self-centered, narcissistic society that is, I believe, ever existed on the face of the earth. We are self-absorbed. We want what we want, and we want it now. Amen? Just say amen, because you do. (laughs) And I'm not forcing you to say that, by the way. It's true, isn't it? Anybody in here, when you go to a restaurant, do you say to the wait staff, oh, just pick whatever you want for me? You don't do that, right? When you go to Disneyland, you go to the rides you want to go on. Nobody goes to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride first. It's like immediately to Space Mountain or, you know, some biggie. When you go to the car lot, hey, can you give me the junker? Do you have any that don't run? No, we want to please us. When you go to buy a home... We want, a, we want the nicest money can buy, whatever we can afford. We want the best of it. We are very self-centered. And this fights against that self-centeredness. It plays havoc with our self-centeredness. Because we as humankind were made by God as sexual beings. There are parts of your anatomy that were created specifically for that purpose. And God knew exactly what he was doing. And he did a great job. And so because he did a great job, well, I like that. So I want that when I want that. And I don't want God telling me when I can have that. So just like everything else in life, We have begun, as a society, to treat sex as though it's some kind of right that we have, when in fact it is a privilege that God designed into marriage. We don't have the right to abuse our own bodies sexually. In that sense, your body is not your own. You see what the Apostle is saying here, and tonight is PG-13, so if there are any smaller children, I would uh, caution parents. What the Apostle Paul is really saying is, look, this is, this is what we see. And so there are really two ways, if you will, uh, that you can look at this, in, in two basic abuses. And one of them is, while the, while the Lord Jesus has taken away our sin, amen, He's forgiven it. He's washed you. He's cleansed you. He's made you right. He's done that by his grace and through the faith that he gave you as a gift. When you said yes to Jesus, you also said, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Amen? You didn't say, well, I'll take your grace, but I'm keeping my sin too. You can't do that. Anyone that tells you that grace allows you to keep your sin does not know what the Bible says. Because the Apostle Paul addressed that very thing when he said, what then, should we go on sinning that grace might abound? And he answered his own question and said, certainly, or even better, heavenly not. Not according to God's plan. You you can't keep your sin. Your sin has to go. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things are passing away. And I am becoming new in Christ. So the person who wants to stay old is basically saying, I don't want to be new. And if you're saying you don't want to be new, then you don't want to be with Jesus. That's straightforward enough? The reason I'm saying that is people dance around this issue in the church. You can't keep your sin and keep Christ. Now you can stumble You can fall, you can have all kinds of issues, but you better be repentant. And if you're not, you have to ask yourself the question, who is my master? Because the one who's inside of me, 
When I mess up, you know what he does? By the Holy Spirit, it's this. Jeffrey, you know you're not supposed to be doing that. And I don't say, well, Lord, you are outdated. I mean, come on, do you know what year it is? It's 2018. Have you seen what I can see on my cell phone? Am I speaking to anybody tonight? You see, just because it's lawful does not make it okay with God. Because there are all kinds of things that are lawful, read it again, but they do not build up. They will destroy you. So the first way to look at this, very easy, just because you've had it forgiven, doesn't mean it was ever beneficial. And because you have the Holy Spirit in you, you now know it's wrong. The Holy Spirit's convicting of sin and of righteousness. That's the two principal functions of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Yes, the Holy Spirit empowers, but the principal functions of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to convict of sin and of righteousness. You have a built-in sin-o-meter. Amen? You know. You know when you're in that relationship. You know when you go to that bar. You know when you turn on that TV channel. You know when you have that conversation. You know, you know, you know, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit's going, mm, 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 mm. it's the other way. The button you're looking for right now on the remote's the off button, Jeff. That's the Holy Spirit. But when you can resist that repeatedly over and over and over and over again until you reach the point, I don't care what you say. You know how kids do this? I'm not listening. What that means in the life of the believers, maybe you're not one of God's kids. Because God's kids listen. You may listen poorly, but you will listen. The second abuse, though some things are not necessarily sinful, you see the first one really is sin and it's obvious. The second one is not necessarily sinful things, but they still grab a hold of you and make you so you're useless to the kingdom. And to me, in this category fall all kinds of things. They can even be some good things. Sports might end up in that category. You find yourself, you know, I can't go to church, honey. I got a date with a little white ball. I really stink at this, but I'm getting better. I like golf, by the way. Just saying, if you have a sickness, I'll pray for you. All kinds of things can get in your way and become your master. How about wealth? Wealth is not wrong. How about business? Business is not wrong. But if you don't have time for Jesus, business can become a master. Wealth can become a master. Golf can become a master. And the one's going to hurt you ladies. Retail therapy can become your master. <laughs> it was on sale. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, I got this 80% off. <laughs> That's 20% more than it's worth. Because you didn't need it. You know what I'm saying? 
And I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be kind and, and help you. We're all in this together. Each one of us has our things. But when we fail to yield to the Holy Spirit, because the way the Holy Spirit speaks to you on that particular issue is you put the card in and it comes back, not sufficient funds. And you put it in again or you pull out another one or you get a new credit card. It's starting to get to where it's mastering you, right? It starts to rule. It starts to reign. That behavior, though not necessarily sinful, becomes your new lover. The new one you can't wait to see. Oh, you don't really care to see Jesus. You just want to see that thing that has mastery over you. You see, it's controlling, it's besetting. It's that which pushes you away. Family, we're, we're called to be radically different. It's super easy to overlook what is the key issue here, which is immorality. It's super easy. I'm going to get to some stats here in, in just a little bit. It's easy. You, you see, we can overlook, even in the church, some adultery and greed and drunkenness. We overlook gluttony. Gluttony's listed as a sin. Let's be honest, let's be open. Oh boy, but we come down on the homosexual. Or we lay the heavy hand to the fornicator. Or the person struggling with pornography. We have to be intellectually honest and biblically accurate, and that is God hates sin, period. We've been called to be radically different. God's Word is the standard. You see, the same Bible that condemns the sin of homosexuality also condemns the sin of gluttony. It condemns drunkenness, which comes from alcohol abuse. So do you see where the mastery issue comes in? What if you never started drinking in the first place? Not going to get a mastery on you, is it? What if you never experimented sexually with someone you're not married to? Not going to get a mastery on you, is it? You see, the issue Paul now brings up is anything that can steer you away from God. I I actually talked to a lady a few months ago that was addicted to cosmetic surgery. She just wanted to look younger and younger and younger, and I thought to myself, well, you can go back to five or what? Where does it stop? (laughs) And I felt for her because you could see the pain. I was like, oh no, it's got a hold on you. You see, something that gets a hold on you is sinful. And in the most direct way, Romans 14 says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not of faith is sin. If I can't say, Lord, please join me in this, if I can't say this glorifies you, God, then I'm supposed to question whether as a child of God, that's a behavior I am supposed to engage in. Paul's going to deal with Christian freedoms when we get to chapter 8, and so we'll leave that part out. And so he uses an example. He, he takes food versus sex. He says, you say food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. This is another saying, an axiom that they had in the day. But they had a warped understanding of it. And here's the way it went. You see, if you can just eat food, this is going to be a little bit touchy. I'll do it as delicately as I can. The bottom line, something's going to come out if it's gone in. Amen? 
That's going to happen. So they associated this bodily function of eating food and it having some fairly unpleasant result eventually to, well, what's the difference between that and the sexual relationship? Isn't it just some body parts? Isn't it just something that, you know, you can kind of do or not do? Does it really matter? And so they disassociated the body. But the problem is what the Apostle Paul said here is very, very, very specific. And so he says the body, the whole body, all of you, which is three parts, not just physical, not just your psyche, your mind, or mental, and not just spiritual, but all three put together, your body belongs to God. So you're not just defiling the physical part. You're not just misusing the physical part. You're not just misusing the mental part. You are also misusing the spiritual part, and it is there that you connect with God. You were created in God's image. The original design says, and he breathed into man his very own breath of life. And in God's image was man made. The whole of you, all three parts. You see, your created purpose is to be whole before God. Your created purpose is to have fellowship with God. In order to do that, you need all three parts. You need a body. It carries you around. That's how you share the gospel. That's how you go from place to place. It's how you stay alive. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit is attached directly to this temple. But you see, the Greeks said, well, you know, you got your body, and we know that's just a mess, so do whatever you want with that. As long as you take care of your mind, you got to think right. This art, I think and therefore I am, right? It's whatever I think about it. It's the beginning of existentialism. It's what I think it is. doesn't matter what you think it is. If I think it's okay, it's okay. Sound like any group of people you know today? Isn't that the mantra of America? If I say it's right, it's right. You see, God knew that was going to happen. And so he writes this amazing letter. He says, look, stomach was made for food, but your bodies were not made for sexual immorality. Your body was made to take in food, digest it, and get rid of it. But your body was not made for indiscriminate sex. Because at that level, you are connecting with that other person. He said, the two shall become one. So you're joining with somebody else, their mind, their body, and their spirit, and the two become one, and you're doing something that God said you're not supposed to do because it destroys you. The destructive power of sex outside of marriage. Paul's basically challenging us. He's saying, look, you were created for a higher purpose than that. And to differentiate, he uses two Greek words in describing your body. You see, if he was just talking about your flesh, in other words, the body that you dwell in, this bag made out of bones and meat, with this chemical computer that's running around in your head, if he was just talking about that, then he would have used the Greek word sarks. Latin word is carne. Same thing in Spanish, amen? Meat. Just your flesh. But that's not what he used. He used soma. Soma is the whole you. He said your soma was not created for sexual immorality. Your mind wasn't, your body wasn't, and your spirit wasn't created for that. 
It was created for fellowship with God and deep and intimate fellowship with one other person. Puts it in a perspective, doesn't it? So the care that you have, we have, for our own bodies is a way for us to say to God, we understand what you created us for. And to do it any other way destroys us. You see, it's not just your physical bodies. It's not just a set of chemicals. It's not just the neurons being stimulated and producing endorphins or oxytocin. It's not just your body doing what your body does. It is your body along with the way you think about it. Anybody in here figured out how to erase stuff in your head? Because if you do, please, in Jesus' name, come tell me we're going to make billions. (laughs) Right? Erasing the memories that people should not and do not want to have. You can't, can you? Oh, you can put other stuff on top of them, and by God's grace, He can wash over it with His love. That's a work of the Spirit, by the way. But how many of you can remember virtually every sinful thing that you've ever done? Don't raise your hands, please. But you can, can't you? You think back, and again, please no raised hands. Anyone in this room that has been intimate with more than one person, you can remember both, can't you? Now do you know why God is saying don't do it? Because it's not just a sin against your physical body, your sarks, your carne, your flesh. It is a sin against the whole you, your soma, whereby you are connected to God. So all of those things have a lasting effect. There are things you'll have to deal with. And praise God for His grace, amen? And His healing, amen? And He does do some memory erasing. But the bottom line is, it's destructive. Those things stay resident within your soma. Throw a few things in there like venereal disease. HIV and AIDS, cervical cancer. It's all kinds of things that you end up human pamploma virus. That's because of not listening to God, generally speaking. See, God does know what He's talking about. How many people can't have children? God knows what he's talking about. And oh, praise God for his grace and his mercy and his love and his care, his tenderness, and most of all, his forgiveness. Amen? Amen. He does forgive. But sin can leave its mark. And this one leaves a mark like no other. And it does not matter whether it is homosexual or heterosexual or asexual. Sexual sin absolutely destroys part of you. And so Paul says, don't do it. We live in an era of societal sexual saturation. And notice what he says. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? That's what the New Living Translation says. Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. Don't you realize that a man joins himself to a prostitute? He becomes one body with her. For the scripture says two are united into one. 
And so what happens is eros, physical attraction, hormonal attraction, visual stimulation becomes the thing that links you together instead of agape. Instead of there being a relationship that withstands the trials, the tribulations of life, they're simply chemicals and physical workings of pleasure. And all of you know this. Does a new car eventually lose its luster? I'm being metaphorical. Does a new car eventually lose its luster? The answer is yes. First time you take it to Vaughn's, ding in the door, you're like, ah! After the 50th one, you kind of don't care anymore, right? After you've backed into a light post in a parking lot or you've blown your first motor, what do you start to do? You want to trade it in. I'm getting rid of this thing. Why? Because you don't have agape for your car, I hope, in Jesus' name. You may have had some fellowship with it. You might have had some phileo. You might have kind of brotherly loved it a little bit. That's why we give them names. But I guarantee you there's nobody in here that's going to go out, I will give my life for my car. I love my car so much. If you've ever driven with my car, oh, it's just heaven. No, you're not going to do that, right? Why? Because you don't actually love your car. You say you love your car, but you actually probably don't even really like your car, especially when you make the payments on it. The reason I'm using this analogy is this. That's exactly what sex is like without commitment, without agape. Long as it looks good, long as it drives well, as long as I get some pleasure out of going down the road. And then you get a few bumps and bruises. The actual relationship gets tested. And the quality and the type of the love is determined by how it responds in adversity, isn't it? You see, because if it's just about that, then the first time something serious happens, I'm looking to trade in. That's not real love. We'll get to this in a week or two. You see, what happens is we begin to confuse physical attraction. That sin saturation that we have in our society. And just to make sure I was current, I actually did some research this afternoon. Because sex is not just a physical act. You become one with that person. But what our society is telling us is you should just use that as some form of recreation. It's a way to relieve stress. After all, it doesn't cost anything. It's pleasurable. If you feel like it, do it. And to that end, Harvard and Dartmouth joined together with a bunch of psychologists They did a study entitled The Greater Exposure to Sexual Content in Popular Movies and the predictions made thereby for earlier sexual debut and increased risk-taking. Nice long name, amen? That's a very long way of saying if you watch stuff on TV, you might do it in real life. And where this is so painful is with our children. 
Because it is now well known that early exposure to sexuality, especially to the visual aspects of it, stimulates the mind and the hormones of young people to act out on what they see. Moms, dads, I'm speaking to you. Single people, I'm speaking to you. 1,228 participants, 12 to 14 years old, experienced levels of sexual tension that were 50% or greater than normal by simply watching something with sexual content. Now you say, well, Jeff, it's not that bad. Here's what they found. In R-rated films, 97.8% of them had sexual content. In PG-13 films, 85% of them had sexual content. In PG films, 82% of them had sexual content. Hold on to your hats. In Disney films, G-rated films, 68% had sexual content. It's worse when you go to television. Sexual sin is going to cost you. It's going to bear really, really, really bad fruit. I want to turn your attention to some things that you're probably not going to want to hear. 25% of all internet searches, 25% of the nearly 40 trillion internet searches that are done every year, 40%. You start to look at the number of pornographic searches Fully 25% of them use sexual terms. Trillions of internet searches based on sexual terms. Everything from anatomy to openly vulgar things. Total number of websites on the entire internet that contain pornography is 12% of the entire internet. The average number of visitors to adult websites a month, 75 million. Percentage of all internet users that have been to a Pornographic site, and yes, they can and do track you. 43% of every living, breathing human being who has internet access. Percentage of people who accidentally stumble upon a pornographic site while on the internet, 75%. You think we have a problem with devaluing what God intended for the sexual relationship between a man and a woman? I do. And the church better wake up because the church does not have a great track record in being any different than the world. Here's a good one for you number of people who believe that internet pornography ought to be illegal. 81%. Why don't we vote for some people who change the laws would be my question. The number of new pornographic websites that end up on the internet every day, 266. New ones every day. A number of youths who before the age of 12 have seen a pornographic website, one in seven. Why am I telling you all this? We live in a sex-saturated society 
And so the world is screaming. Your Bible's outdated. Just let your kids do whatever they want. Don't worry about it. Everybody does it. It's perfectly normal. How are you going to know if you're sexually compatible unless you try it out? You know how? Because if you're a man and a woman, you're sexually compatible. God did a really good job of design. You're not going to have any problems. It'll work. But if you misuse it, you're going to pay a heavy price. I have probably talked to thousands of people in my time in ministry, ultimately, thousands of children, kids, whose lives are ruined because no other sin has the same effect on your memory. No other sin has the same effect on your memory because it is attached to neurochemical transmitters that tell your body, this is a great thing. It links it all together. So what does Paul say? He says, don't go there. We, we have a buzz phrase in our society right now. And you've all heard it. Don't tell me what to do with my body. It belongs chiefly to the uber-feminists. And ladies, I'm not picking on you because men do the same thing and they're actually as much responsible as anybody else. But your Bible says if you're a Christian, sorry, your body does not belong to you. And in fact, it's still a truth for every living, breathing human being. Your body doesn't belong to you. It was created by God. He's actually the owner. And so he set some guidelines. He set some limits. He set some parameters. He said, and Paul says, your body as a believer was made as a temple. It's a place of worship. Amen? It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of prayer. And that doesn't mean we wander around and, you know, every 30 seconds we're on our knees, Almighty oh, God of heaven. It simply means that your body is a movable temple, and wherever you go, the Lord Jesus goes with you. And whatever you do, He is a part of. And so He says, please don't drag me into a situation that the King of kings and Lord of lords should never be in. Please don't link me with the prostitute, is what he's saying. Please don't unite me with sin, is another way to look at it. And I know this is tough, but please stay with me on this. You see, the reason he says that is because of the price that was paid for you. Our Savior Jesus was nailed to a cross and a spear thrust in his side. He was put to death to free you from the bondage of sin. To release you from the power that sin has over you. Why would you ever want to return to it? Because sin, though pleasurable for a season, exactly as the psalmist said, the end of it, the end of sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, righteousness, is not like the original gift of sin. You, you see, we have this opportunity to be freed from that which binds the world. Because of the one who lives in us. It's not your body. It's not my body. The ultimate price was paid for you. Paid for me. 
And in that sense, we shouldn't be acting like pagans. Amen? We shouldn't. He made you and he paid for you. Think of it that way. Not only did he put all the effort and energy into making you, but he actually then bought you back from what you did with what he made. Again, you who are parents, you know this. You know, we we try and give our children the very best of whatever we can give them. Amen? Don't we? Aren't you a little disappointed when they take what you've given them, you worked hard for, paid for, sweat, blood, and tears you put into their life, and they take it out in the backyard and they beat it with a hammer? You kind of go, what'd you do that for? Took me three months of working to get some extra money to buy that for you. You treat it like it's junk. How much more what the Lord Jesus did to pay for you and me. Why would we take it out in the backyard and beat it with a hammer? Do you understand? We should not. It should be an anathema. It should bother us. It's the reason that we're bothered when our children do things like that. Now imagine on an infinitely greater scale, God in heaven going, oh no, you didn't do that with Jesus. Oh no. Jeff, that's not what I want for you. I gave my son so that you could be free of that. Why would you want to do that? And so to convince us He allows some very terrible things sometimes to come into our lives. He says, look, this is is what happens. It's not what I want for you, but you chose this, and so now you have these consequences in your life. All family of God. Praise God for the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Who frees us from all of this. And when we have stumbled and when we have failed, when we've done what we shouldn't do, when we've used our bodies in a way that is not befitting the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's still able to redeem to the uttermost. He still will forgive. All we need to do is confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen? But we have to confess and we have to turn. We have to say, Lord, I believe that you are going to forgive. And so my action saying that I know that is that I turn from those things. And it doesn't really matter what sin you take. You may forget about your sins, but your sins don't forget you. There can be, in essence, eternal consequences. When that mastery takes over, when, when the Spirit stops speaking, there really shouldn't be any thing that we should think in our hearts and our minds, but Lord, let me get back to where you are. We, we can't be unashamed. We can't be unrepentant. Oh, we are slow on the uptake sometimes. We, we stumble, we... we Jam our toes. Is there anything any more unpleasant than waking up in the middle of the night and sticking your one toe on one side of the bed frame and the other toe on the other side of the... That's like the worst thing ever. Oh, we do that kind of stuff because sometimes we're not thinking. We get up and we're rumbling around and we're not looking. The light's not on. That happens. We stumble. But it shouldn't be a way of life. It shouldn't be, man, look at that bed frame. Whack! Oh, that hurts! You would kind of think there's something wrong with somebody that did that, wouldn't you? I would. So does God. And so he turns up, ratchets up. The conviction in your life, he turns up the consequences in your life. He causes you to have some things go on that you don't really like in your life. Because he wants to get the picture. He doesn't really want you to stub your toe. And if you do and you can see it, then there's something wrong. 
He wants to set us free. We may stumble, but we shouldn't stay. And if you stay, you ought to be really seriously concerned. So very often the church is actually majored in condemning sins. We, we rightly should call sin, sin. But the only hope for any sin is the Savior, amen? The only answer to our condition is grace, amen? So let's not cheapen grace. Let's not spit on grace. Let's not tell Jesus he needs to die just a little bit more. Because we won't flee sin. James said it this way, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a truth. When you tell the devil no, he turns tail and runs. But you need to tell him no frequently and often. You can't just like twice a week go, well, I'm kind of thinking about it. (laughs) It doesn't work real well. Because he hangs around. He sends new temptation. So, well, I didn't get him with that. I'll get him with this. You look him in the eye and say, no. I won't do it. Jesus died for me, and I belong to him. You can't have me. I'm not yours. I belong to him. We're his bride, and we should act like it. That's why Jesus there in Luke's gospel, Matthew's as well. No servant can serve two masters. And they hate the one, love the other, be loyal to the one, despise the other. You can't serve God in anything. Not money, not sex, not power, passion, or possessions. We serve the Lord, the one that bought us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray together. And I know this is a little heavy tonight. And thank you for hearing, because sometimes we need that word. Maybe it wasn't for you. Maybe you're golden. You're good. But it might be for somebody else. And so the pastors are going to come forward and they're going to be available for prayer. Maybe you're struggling tonight. Maybe there's just something on your heart or your mind. You just, you you haven't really let it go. Can I tell you, Jesus wants that. He wants to set you free tonight. He doesn't want you leaving this place with that which weights you down. If you need somebody to pray with you, maybe you came tonight and and you honestly don't know whether you're one of God's kids or not. Maybe some of these things have been in your life for so long that you can't honestly say you really believe you've been delivered and that doesn't sound like someone who's really a child of God. Well, come and recommit yourself to the Lord. But know this. The Lord loves us. The Lord loves us. And his forgiveness is available to anyone who will ask. And so just ask. And let tomorrow be a fresh start. When you wake up in the morning, you can say, I'm not kicking the bed frame. I'm going around it. I know it's there. Maybe that's a website. Maybe that's a relationship. Maybe that's a bar. Maybe that's a job. Maybe it's something that has mastered you. Maybe it's sports or a career. Maybe there's something that God wants to take from you tonight. And I'm going to pray with all of us, but if you need special prayer, you need somebody to just agree with you, then as the pastors come forward, just come and be prayed for. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Lord, we were dead. 
And you've made us alive. And Lord, we admit that sometimes we, we do things that don't please you. And Lord, we're ashamed. And we're sorry. And God, we're asking you to take our desires and hold them captive by your grace. And your mercy, give us strength. We ask you to help us resist the devil that he would flee. Lord, we pray that you would cause our minds to be stayed, made strong in you, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me, Lord. Oh, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for cleansing. Thank you for washing over us and Thank you for dwelling in us, Lord. We, we know we've taken you to some places you didn't want to go. And while you couldn't look on sin, you had to watch us. Lord, do what we shouldn't do. And Lord, we're sorry. Help us, Lord, with those areas of struggle. We love you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.